Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. If you turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 6, we're going to Continue in this wonderful passage here that the Lord has given us, Matthew chapter 6 and the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, let's just, uh, first of all, we'll take some time now just to look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you this morning with your Bible open before us. And we're so conscious this morning of the fact that we can't know, we can't learn without your Holy Spirit to teach us. So we ask him to be our teacher in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Matthew chapter six, verse nine, is where we're gonna be continuing this morning. Matthew chapter six, verse nine, where we read, after this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. Okay, now, where we are in this part of the scriptures here is that the Lord, after explaining so many negatives of what we are not to do in prayer, we've come now to the section where the Lord has taught us what to do in prayer. And in verse nine, a very important word that the Lord used is the word manner. When he said, after this manner, therefore pray ye. So he's teaching his followers how to pray, and he's using the word manner to show this is a direction in prayer. And the very last thing that the Lord wanted to see happen with this prayer guide is that this prayer guide should be used as a sort of uh, important formula of words, a sort of mystical recitation, I guess it is, yeah, that where there's some kind of particular power in these words, and this is not at all what the Lord wanted to see because he prefaces prayer by saying, don't use vain repetitions. Now, there's nothing vain about what he said, but unfortunately, this is just what has happened to what's called the Lord's Prayer when it's just sort of repeated without any thought going into it, with just saying the words as if there's some kind of power in just the words. As a matter of fact, in the synagogue, this is a practice that's done, and what is used in the synagogue is called a door, a door, which means a prayer book. And what that door contains is all these prayers that had to be just recited. And so from the synagogue door there, the prayer book, the tendency was just to say the words, tendency, the practice is just to say the words over and over again and to think that those words are kind of like the, a password, you know, a password on a computer that all you have to do is, who are you, identification, what's your password? You repeat these words and then somehow lets you in. It's the idea that the recited prayers can be like the magic formula. I don't use like the word use magic, but anyway. So, but they're not a password. 
Recited prayers are not the password to come to God. And this is a common downfall with man, which is to repeat words without any heart engagement, without any understanding. And so the value of this prayer that he's given is just to give us an intention direction. And the first direction that he gives is to start with a knowledge of who God is and who we are. This is the idea that's behind our Father, which art in heaven. And when we think about it, it's so astounding for us to be called God our Father. Someone might say, how dare you call God our Father? Where do you come off with calling God our Father? Well, the reality is it's a privilege. It's a unique privilege. It's not for everybody. It's not like Nancy Pelosi says, there's a spark of God in everybody. I don't even know what that means, but anyway. There's a unique privilege here to call God our Father. He could have just, and not only just call God our Father, but our Father which art in heaven. Why did he add that, which art in heaven? Why didn't he just say, our Father, thy kingdom come, thy will be done? Why didn't he just do that? But he calls God our Father which art in heaven. And immediately as he does this, there is contrast. There's always contrast set up in his teaching. Here's a contrast. Our father, my father who is on earth, my earthly father, versus, in contrast to, my father who's in heaven, my heavenly father. And so just to be able to call God our father sets up a contrast with the issue of who gets to do this? Who gets to call God his father? Who has the privilege of doing this? And this contrast and this privilege is explained to us in John chapter one, verse 11, 1, 11, and 12. We are told, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. That's John 1.11. He came unto his own, his own received him not. But, John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So here's a contrast. Here's a contrast in response. This is what this contrast is talking about in John 1.11 and 12. It's a contrast of response. It's a contrast of response coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and the response between the Jewish people as a whole and the others that are called the many. The response of the Jewish people on a whole is given to us very simply in verse 11, John 1, 11, he came unto his own and his own received him not. So what does that mean? He came unto his own, his own received him not. Well, it means he came knocking on the door of their heart and their response was double bolt the door. That was the response, that's expressed by receive him not. Reminds me of a pastor in the Philippines one time, I think I told you this, who was telling me how he brought the gospel to a man and that man told him, I would rather be in hell than to receive Jesus Christ as my God. And this is the ultimate state of a person not receiving the Lord Jesus. And when you think about it, it's really the position of every lost person who ends up being cast into hell. I mean, to us, it looks outwardly like, well, he's refusing to accept the Lord Jesus as his God, his Savior, it just kind of looks passive. He's kind of, maybe he says something like, not now, maybe later, I'll get it later in life, I'll have time to consider this thing. It doesn't really appear to us as the bold, I would rather be in hell than to accept Christ. But see, that position of, well, not now, later, when I have time, to, that's really a passive aggression. That's a passive aggression where it's really in the form of an apathy that really says, I'm too bored with the question to even consider Jesus as my God. 
Yesterday, a man was telling me how he was talking to his friend. They were talking about a dog. I know, Ken, you just got a new puppy. But anyway, they were talking about a dog and the wonder of the dog. And this man asked his friend, he says, who made the dog? He said, no, 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 I want you to really consider the question. Who made the dog? He had to press him, who made the dog? And finally, the man just said, I don't know, I guess God did. But you know, that's really a response of, of a passive aggression. I'm too bored to even consider the question. Now, his friend could not really give the common explanation of in the beginning, nothing exploded, and we have the perfect universe, and then non-living chemicals somehow came together, organized themselves into the building blocks of life, which from a chemical point of view, the chemical point of view, the four building blocks of life are complex chemicals called amino acids, lipids, carbohydrates and nucleic acids. Those are the four basic building, uh, chemical building blocks of life. And so somehow these non-living chemicals organize themselves into that and somehow those four building blocks somehow organize themselves into very complex structures of lipid bilayers on the surface of the cell and so forth that somehow became a cell and somehow that sort of organized itself into a complex set of many cells that became a fish and somehow it became an amphibian like a frog and it climbed out of the water and then somehow it became a dog. He couldn't say that because that's just stupid. But anyway, so he just says, I don't know, I guess God. This is what John 1.11 looks like. I don't know, I guess God. That's what John 1.11 looks like when it says they received him not. That's what it looks like today. To not receive him, not consider him, which was the accusation that God brought against Israel in Isaiah 1.2, Isaiah 1.2 through 3 where God said, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they've rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. See that statement? They doth not consider. It's like I'm too bored with the question. To not consider is what God calls a rebellion. So, this is one group of people and their response in life is described as they received him not. That's one group. They have no right to call God the Father. But in the next verse, in verse 12, John 1.12, John 1.12, he puts it, he says, these are the ones who have been given the right, they've been given the authority to call God their Father. They've been given the right to be a children of God. They've been given the right, therefore, to call him Father. These are described in John 1.12 as the group called the many, who are made up of both a remnant of the Jewish people and many Gentiles, and they've been given authority from heaven, it's heaven's authority to be called a child of God and therefore to call God the Father. They've been given this authority. So their response when the Lord Jesus comes knocking on the door of their heart is John 1:12. as many as received him. What does that mean? Their response was unlock, throw open the door of my heart, I'll bow before him as he comes in, I'll give him the throne of my heart, and he's gonna rule. Just like the hymn says, king of my life, I crown thee now. So that's a contrasting response between to the Lord's coming between those who said, no, I won't let you into my heart, and those who responded a thousand times, yes, into my heart, into my heart, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in today, come in to stay, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. And to those, he gives the right to be called the sons of God and to call God Father. And this is the starting point of this verse nine in Matthew six. Matthew six, nine, 
our Father who art in heaven. It's this contrast between the earthly father and the heavenly father, and it all comes about from a special birth, which is described John 1.13, John 1.13, where it says, these ones who responded in the affirmative, who opened the door of our hearts, they were born, but not of blood. Again, the contrast. They were born, not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So to call God our Father who art in heaven is a privilege, it's a result of a second birth, and it's to call God our Father is to have the ultimate good Father, the best of fathers, you know, the father of leave it to beaver, I don't remember, Haskins or whatever. Anyway, as good as he was, God said, the Lord Jesus said about fathers in Matthew 7.11, Matthew 7.11, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Now when we think about the audience of who he was speaking to, this was a Jewish audience. All right, so the Lord is speaking to a Jewish audience and he says the word, our Father. Now actually, this term, our Father, was and is very familiar to the Jewish people when they heard God be called our Father. That resonates, that resonated, but the second part, which art in heaven, that's foreign. They didn't know that, that's, that doesn't resonate. Because when the Lord said, our Father, everyone's ears perked up because what he said in Hebrew was avenu, avenu. That's what it means, our Father. And the reason everybody resonated when they heard the word avenu is because it's a very famous prayer, it's a famous chant that's sung every Rosh Hashanah and every Yom Kippur, and it's actually called the prayer of Avenu, Avinu, or Avinu Malkenu, which means our Father, our King. And the prayer is very sad. It's a very longing song, which is really a pleading, and it's sung by the cantor in the synagogue. So you know the synagogue has the rabbi, and he has the cantor, the cantor sings. My last name is Cantor. But it didn't always be, it wasn't Cantor. It became Cantor. It became Cantor one day, standing in front of one desk in Ellis Island, when my grandfather and my grandfather stood there in 1907 and was asked what their name was, and they said, you know, our name is Kentorovich. And the man at the desk said, no, 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 not in America. <laughs> that's way too, we can't have any Kentorovich, are you kidding? Yeah, cut it off, it's Cantor. And that's how my family name got changed from Kentorovich to Cantors. Well, in Russian, Kentorovich means the son of a Cantor, and the, as I said, the Cantor's one who sings, and so, that's why I'm under the illusion that I can sing, but I can't, but anyway. But my family name was Kantorovich because we were a line of cantors from Vilnius in Lithuania. So every Rosh Hashanah and every Yom Kippur went to the synagogue, my father would tell me over and over again how my great-grandfather and my grandfather sung this song, Avinu, in the synagogue in Lithuania. And there's one phrase that's repeated three times in this prayer of uh, Avinu, Avinu Malkenu, and it is the phrase, Shema Kolenu, Shema Kolenu. Shema, you know, Shema means here, and uh, Kol is voice, and Enu is us, so what Shema Kolenu means is hear our voice, hear our voice. And every Jewish person in that group, hearing his Sermon on the Mount, when they heard him say, Our Father, Avenu, they thought of this prayer, this song, this Avenu, this longing of this prayer. The melody of the prayer is very mournful, it's very longing, it's very pleading. Alvin Malkano is actually a very sad melody. 
kind of drags on, it goes like this. Avinu malkeinu, Avinu malkeinu, Avinu malkeinu, Shema koleinu, Shema koleinu. And then it goes on. Avinu malkeinu, Avinu malkeinu, Shema that's how it goes. And what is it saying there? It's pleading over our Father, our King, hear our voice, hear our voice, hear our voice. It's so sad that even Barbara Streisand could not take away its sadness when she sung it for the president. So when the Lord Jesus taught them to pray, our Father, or Avinu, he's right up their alley, and they're thinking, Avinu Malkinu, but he doesn't say the next word. He goes in a totally different direction when he says, Avinu Shiboshamayim. So in other words, our Father, which art in heaven. So this is a departure from the traditional prayer. He starts off with Alvino, and they say, okay, it's very interesting, we understand that, we've heard that before, but now it's become clear he's not gonna do as the rabbis did to teach them what to recite, when to recite it, how to recite it from the Siddur, from the prayer book in the synagogue. And this was leading the people to see the difference between his teaching and the teaching of the rabbis, which that's really what the Sermon on the Mount's all about, which led them to at the end of his teaching to say in Matthew 7, 28, Matthew 7, 28 through 29, and it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Because the people were tired of being taught by the rabbis, taught words that they should pray, foods that they should eat and should not eat, clothes that they should wear, work that they should do and not do on the Sabbath. That was the whole teaching. That's the whole teaching. It's a teaching then, it's a teaching now. And they're tired of being told by the rabbis, you must do and you must not do. So now the Lord Jesus comes on the scene with the Sermon on the Mount. This is like a breath, a great breath of fresh air. He's teaching them something altogether new. His emphasis is altogether different. You know, they were on the outward of the words you say and the outward of the foods you eat and the outward of the clothes you wear and the outward of the work that you do. He's turning the whole emphasis around and now it's on the inner. It's on the thoughts that you must think and not think. It's on the love that you must have and the hatred you must not harbor. It's on the heart that you must have and this is the heart you must not have. This is a new teaching, this is a new direction. It's all on the inner, whereas the rabbis is teaching all on the outer and this is why he used the word when he came to this prayer, manner. Don't take this as literal, you must do these exact words. It's a manner because the Lord Jesus never spoke about the words that you should pray and the food that you should eat and not eat and the clothes that you should wear, and the work that you should do and not do on the Sabbath. He never did that. And so that led the people to say, we never heard any rabbi teach like this. There's an authority to his teaching, an authority from heaven. We never heard it from the rabbis before, the scribes. So after the word Avinu, and, or our father, it gets interesting now. And it gets thought-provoking for the people because, like I said, he says, Shebo Shemaim, which means, which art in heaven. And now he's introducing them to pray in verse nine, hallowed be thy name, hallowed be thy name. 
Well, you know, hallowed, we don't use the word hallowed. I haven't heard it in the last 24 hours. Hallowed is an old English word, and it means to make holy, to make holy. If you take something and you make it holy, let's say by purification, then you hallowed it. This was done for the spoils that the children of Israel took in war. And then they took those spoils and they used them in the tabernacle for well, the jewels that the women received from the Egyptians when they left Egypt, including the fine twine linen, you know, Egyptian cotton, who was very famous then, very famous now, and all the silver and the gold, and a lot of precious metals. When they got those metals, the gold, the silver, and so forth, they were cast into idols. They were idols. That's what they were. Many of them were idols. And they were idols that the Egyptians used. They were idols that the inhabitants of the land used. Well, what in the world? How do you take something that's an idol and now introduce it into God's tabernacle for worship? How do you do that? Well, very simple. You hallow it. You sanctify it. You sanctify comes the word cleanse. You cleanse it. So what did he mean by hallowed be thy name? Because that means make holy your name, cleanse your name. Well, how are you gonna do that? God's name is already holy. You cannot make something holy that's already holy. You cannot hallow something that's already holy. God's name is already holy. You can't make God's name any more holy than it already is. God's name is already clean. So it doesn't need to be sanctified, doesn't need to be cleansed, doesn't need to be made clean. You can't make something clean that's already clean. So hallowed be thy name does not mean make God's name holy in the sense, but because it's already holy. Well then what does it mean? What does it mean to make God's name holy or hallowed be thy name? Well what he meant was to pray a wish, pray a desire that on earth God's name would be honored and revered as holy like it is in heaven. God's name today, let's face it, it's dragged through the dirt. God's name is dragged through the dirt. The name Jesus Christ is used as a curse word. It reminds me of a construction man, not Clint, that I was with, and when he saw that his men built the roof wrong and it had to be redone, he used the Lord's name. He said, Jesus Christ. And I stopped him, I said, don't do that. I said, what you did is far worse than the problem of rebuilding the roof. And so the Lord said, hallowed be thy name, and by the way, this is the first of three desires of what should come to earth. There's three desires here in this prayer. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And by the way, that last phrase for the last one, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, really covers all three of these three prayers because these are prayers of what should change on earth and be like it is in heaven. And these three prayers of this part of this prayer are all desires for what is hoped for, for what is longed for on earth as it is in heaven. It kinda goes like this, I desire with all my heart, I long for with all my soul that your name would be holy, would be held in reverence, would be respected on earth like your name is revered and respected and honored, held as holy in heaven. And all that is encompassed in the prayer, hallowed be thy name. And the next part, I desire with all my heart, I long for with all my soul that your kingdom would come to earth and that this kingdom of darkness is on earth would stop and so that earth can be like it is in heaven. And all that is encompassed in the part of his prayer where he says, thy kingdom come. And then the last one, the third part, I desire with all my heart, I long for with all my soul that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, and all that is encompassed with thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Now, you ask the question, why do you pray these prayers? Like, well, God calls us ambassadors. We are God's ambassadors in 2 Corinthians 5.26. 2 Corinthians 5.26 says, we are ambassadors for Christ. Very simple. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is in heaven. Now, an ambassador lives in a foreign country, and we live in a foreign country. We're the foreign country's earth, and we are the ambassadors of heaven living in the foreign country of earth. That's who we are. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org and sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestorationministries.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California. Santee, California, 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. What are you doing Sunday nights? Join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for the Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. 